Well, it's good to see you all this morning. Let's pray together and ask for God's help. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for you. We thank you and praise you for what you have done, for who you are to us, and this great gospel that we have, this good news of salvation. Lord, we ask and pray for your Holy Spirit to be at work right now in these moments as we look at your word. Lord, would you work to bring encouragement and conviction to build up your church? Would you work to uh, bring change in us, but ultimately, would you work to glorify yourself? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, today is Reformation Sunday, as uh, Sarah mentioned a moment ago. 505, 505 years ago, Martin Luther uh, nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, and that date in 1517 is, is largely the, the date from which historians mark the start of the Reformation, what sparked the Reformation. The Reformation was led by men like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Theodore Beza and Heinrich Bullinger and Martin Bucer and so many others. There's also uh, women in the Reformation uh, like Katarina von Bora and Anna Zwingli and Renee the Duchess of Ferrara and Olympia Murata and so many other women who were also influential and important in advancing the Reformation. These men and women were committed to Christ and to the scriptures as God's standard of truth. They chose to obey God rather than men, risking and sacrificing their lives in the process. They were fighting similar battles that we're fighting today, battles against heresy, both in and out of the church, battles against sin, and for the true saving message of the gospel, the true gospel, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. This is the gospel. This is what the Reformation was about. It's this great truth that we've just been singing this morning. And we are here today standing on the shoulders of these great saints who chose to love and serve Jesus Christ at all costs, come what may. And the same choice is set before us. The torch has been handed to us. And the question is, what will we do with it? I want you to turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 11. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter today. And the message for us is this, choose this day and every day to love, serve, and obey the Lord. Now this is not a new message for us in Deuteronomy. We've been hearing this again and again in our study of Deuteronomy, and we need to hear it over and over again because this is a daily decision. We're going to see three motivations to encourage us to choose to love and serve the Lord, and then we'll look at a final exhortation at the end of the chapter. So first, consider the Lord's work in your life, and so love and serve him always. We see this in verses 1 through 7. Love and obey God. Why? What should motivate you? God's past work in your life. Look at verse 1. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. 
The therefore in this verse points us back to the previous verses which describe how God had made them a nation, how, they, how he had rescued them from Egypt. And we just can't stress this enough. The command to love and obey God is based on God's prior work of salvation, his work of redemption, his gracious salvation. You don't become God's people by obeying him. God has made you his own, therefore you obey him. We love and serve and obey God in response to his love in saving us and making us his own. Now Moses says, love the Lord and keep his charge, his commands, always. Not sometimes, not just when you feel like it, not on Sundays and Wednesdays, always, even when no one's looking. That's the requirement. And then he gives four illustrations from their past to motivate them to this. He says, consider today, those of you who were uh, alive at the time, alive to see these things, consider the discipline or better the instruction of the Lord your God. God's past action in their lives were meant to give them instruction in the present. They're instructed for them. So consider his greatness, his mighty hand and outstretched arm, his signs and deeds that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh the king of Egypt and to all his land. Verse 3. So the first example is all that God did in Egypt in the Exodus to bring them out, including all the ten plagues. Second, verse 4, and what he did to the army of Egypt and to their horses and chariots and how he made the water of the Red Sea Flow over them as they pursued after you, and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day. Third, verse 5, and what he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place. They experienced both God's provision and protection, and at the same time, they experienced God's chastening, his discipline, when they rebelled and when they grumbled against him. Then, Fourth, verse six, and what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, son of Reuben, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them in the midst of all Israel. Uh, Dathan, Abiram, and Korah, who's not mentioned here, led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron, God's chosen leaders. You can read about this in Numbers 16. They rejected their authority, and they demanded to be priests. They were not satisfied with what God had given them, and their selfish ambition and vain glory was ultimately a rebellion against the Lord, Numbers 16, 11. This negative example here at the end reminds them that God judges sin. So consider the instruction of the Lord in all that he did. You've seen his power in rescuing you and defeating Pharaoh's army. You've seen his provision in the wilderness. You've seen him punish sin and rebellion. So love the Lord and keep his commands always, verse 7, for your eyes have seen all the great work that the Lord did. And God was their school teacher. And his past actions were the lessons for their instruction. They experienced God's power, God's grace, God's faithfulness, God's wrath, God's discipline, God's provision, all of this, and more. See, God is at work in every aspect of your life and my life to train us, to teach us. The good and the bad alike are filled with lessons from the Lord, instructing us in the faith leading us into a deeper relationship with him and leading us to love and keep his commandments always. So how have you seen the Lord work in your life? Do not forget what the Lord has done. Don't forget what you have seen God do. 
How have you seen God's redemption and deliverance? How have you seen his provision and protection? How have you seen his discipline? And consider what God in all of these things is teaching you. What have you learned from God through his actions in your past? What has God taught you about his faithfulness, his power, his love and righteousness and grace and mercy and trustworthiness and so on? We're prone to forget. That's why Moses is always pointing back saying, remember, remember. It's good for us to periodically take a personal inventory of what God has done in our life, to take a a stroll, if you will, down memory lane with Jesus and remind ourselves of all the work that God has done in our lives. The, The first encouragement or motivation for obedience is God's past work. Consider all that God has done in your life and so love and obey him always. Now, whereas verses two and seven, two through seven are focused on the past, the rest of this chapter is going to be focused on the future. Second, don't be deceived. Whoops. Don't be deceived. The Lord provides all your good, so trust and obey him wholly. Look at verse eight. You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today. So not only are we to obey always, verse one, we're to obey holy, verse 8. Keep the whole commandment. Obey all that God says, not some of it, not just the parts that you happen to like, all the word. Notice the word commandment here is singular. That indicates the wholeness of the law and the wholeness of the response that is demanded from us. We're to keep the whole commandment, verse 8, with our whole selves. Verse 13, jump down and look there. It says, love and serve the Lord with all your heart and all your soul. Keep the whole commandment with your whole selves. We don't go halfway with God. God's not after some sort of nice, respectable religion. He's after a sold-out passion that gives him everything. We're not to sort of love God. We're to love and obey God wholly. Why? What should motivate you? All your good depends on him. The second way Moses motivates them is to to love and obey God is by God's future provision. Without obedience, they wouldn't experience God's blessing. And then Moses illustrates this with three reasons all connected to the land. Keep the whole commandment. First, verse 8, that you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land. Second, verse 9, that you may live long in the land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and not perish quickly off the good land, verse 17, that the Lord is giving you. Third, that God may bless the land with rain and fruitful provision. That's what we see in verses 10 through 17. Moses is going to contrast now the land, the promised land, with the land of Egypt. Verse 10, For the land that you are entering to take possession of it is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. The Nile River provided Egypt 
with abundant water. It was the source of that civilization's development and success. The Greek historian Herodotus wrote this, Egypt was the gift of the Nile. Now, the Egyptians created an an irrigation system that took advantage of the annual flooding of the Nile River. Their their agriculture, their, their crops were dependent on this. It was dependent on a human-designed and human-operated irrigation system, giving the impression that their harvest depended on their own ingenuity and effort. On the other hand, the promised land was watered directly by the rain of heaven, verse 11. It is almost entirely dependent on the regularity of the rains for its agricultural productivity. Not that, not that God was any less responsible for the annual flooding of the Nile, but his, his provision in the promised land was much easier to recognize. This short rainy season between 40 and 60 days. And if anything went wrong, if the rains came too late or they ended too early, it could totally devastate the, the crops and their, their harvest. Rather than depending on human techniques... They must depend on God's provision of rain. It increases their responsibility before the Lord for obedience. Lack of obedience would result in a lack of rain and a lack of crops. Faithful obedience would result in falling rain and fruitful yields. So verse 13. And if you will indeed obey my commandments to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he'll give you the rain for your land in its season the early and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil, and he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. But take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens, so there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land, that the Lord is giving you. And we can summarize it like this. If you obey, you'll be strong and take the land. You will live long in the good land and God will bless the land with rain so that it'll be fruitful. But if you do not obey, God will shut up the rain so the land will yield no fruit. You will perish quickly and be off the good land. God has given it and God can take it away. So love and obey him wholly. And because we're not farmers, we're not so directly impacted by the weather, it's harder for us to see our dependence on the Lord's provision, but we are just as much. The promise that you shall eat and be full in verse 15 is followed by a warning. Look again at verse 16. Take care that your heart is not deceived and you turn aside to other gods to worship them. The Canaanites believed that Baal was the one who was responsible for giving the rain and making the land fruitful. So Moses warns them, don't be deceived, because they're going to be tempted to think that Baal did this, and so worship him. Nor should they be deceived, because they will be tempted that they did this by their own skill and wisdom, the temptation of Egypt. Moses warns them that the fruitfulness of the land and its provision is given by God, and so they must trust and obey him. If they turn away, he'll withhold these gifts. They must not receive the gift and forget the giver. They were to recognize that it was the Lord 
not Baal. He was the giver of the rain and the fruitful harvest, so they should worship him and not other gods. See, abundance always comes with warnings. Abundance is dangerous because we get tempted to become complacent and forget our dependence on God. Or we, come, we, we get tempted to, to credit ourselves and stop giving thanks and glory to God. The truth is you will not prosper in your own strength or ability, but only at the hand of the Lord. So to what are we tempted to give the credit for our success? On what are we tempted to rely and therefore come to serve and glorify? Most often it's ourselves. It's our own ingenuity, wisdom, strength, ability, resourcefulness, our own hard work. We're just as apt to rejoice in the gifts and reject the giver or forget the giver. The truth is, is that all that we have, all of our gifts and abilities, all of our opportunities, all that we own, all the good that we have comes from God. And if we're not faithful, God will not bless us, so be faithful. There's a close connection being made in this text, in this chapter, between the obedience, obedience to the Lord and His blessing. Of course, none of this means that a life of faith and obedience is going to be easy or without troubles. The question is, how far can we generalize the link between obedience and material blessing? It's not universal, nor is it mechanical. The caveat is, is that blessing doesn't always mean that a person has been faithful, and suffering doesn't always mean that a person has been unfaithful. Sometimes the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer, yet the principle remains We experience and enjoy God's blessings by a life of faith and obedience. So Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. John 15, 10, and 11. God's commands are for our good, for our benefit, Breaking them leads to misery and pain. Keeping them leads to our greatest joy and satisfaction. So, love and obey God wholly. Third, the assurance of God's promises are tied to perseverance in faith and faithfulness. We see this in verses 18 through 25. The key verse for us here is verse 22. Jump down and look there with me. For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways, holding fast to him, then the Lord is going to do everything that he mentions, or he's going to mention in verses 23 to 25. Look at the end of 25, as he promised you. Verse 22 is about perseverance. Loving God is an ongoing relationship. Walking in all his ways is an ongoing, lifelong obedience. Holding fast to him is about remaining faithful to God. It's the exact same word in Genesis 2.24 when it says, cleave to or hold fast to your wife in marriage. This is about a covenant commitment to God. The point is the perseverance of God's people brings assurance of God's 
promises. There is no assurance for those who continue to live in sin and rebellion against the Lord. We see the exact same truth in verses 18 through 21. They should hide God's word in their heart, verse 18, and teach it to their children, verse 19, so that, verse 21, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, as long as the heavens are above the earth. The assurance of possessing the land forever is tied to their perseverance in faithfulness. If not, they would lose the land. So their victory in the conquest is also tied to their obedience, All this is a motivation for them to be careful to remain faithful to God. Not only are they to obey God always, verse 1, and holy, verse 8, but carefully, verse 22. This word means to hold on to or to be devoted to doing all God's commands. Verses 22 to 25 is a giant if-then statement. Look there again, for if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways, and holding fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourselves. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, to the western sea." No one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you tread. Notice, as he promised you. The assurance of God's promise to occupy and remain in the land is tied to their perseverance in faith and faithfulness. This reminds us as Christians who have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ, who have been given an inheritance in Christ, that our assurance also requires steadfast devotion to Christ. There is no assurance of salvation for those who continue to live in sin, only for those who persevere in the faith, as are the promises. The evidence of being in the kingdom is our devotion to the king, shown in a life of ongoing obedience to him. I want you to notice that verse 22 gives the reason for doing what Moses commands in verses 18 through 21. He begins with the word for or because. So this is the ground for what he commands in verses 18 through 21. That's essentially an extended exhortation. It's it's essentially what we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And there's three exhortations here, and I want to go through these. First, they're to hide God's word in their hearts. Verse 18, you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. God's word should be at the core of who we are, in our very soul, it says. In other words, if someone pricks you, you should bleed scripture, It should be in front of your eyes, guiding everything that you do. God's word is not to be read in the morning and forgotten by lunchtime. It's to be in us and with us at all times, directing our steps. As Spurgeon said, visit many good books, but live in the Bible. God's people should hide God's word in our hearts so we are careful to obey him. Second, 
Parents must diligently disciple their children. Verse 19, you shall teach them God's commands to your children, talking of them when you're sitting in your house and when you're walking by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. In short, throughout your day as a part of the normal course of your life. Parents, you're responsible for teaching your children intentionally, regularly. As we saw in Deuteronomy 6, family discipleship is essential. What's Moses seeking to do here? He's trying to impress upon this next generation that they need to choose to follow the Lord for themselves, here and now. Kids, you cannot rely on the faith of your parents. You must choose to follow the Lord. Every generation, every individual person has to make their own response to the Lord. The people that Moses is talking to on the plains of Moab did not follow through with this. They dropped the baton of faith instead of passing it on. So we read this gut-wrenching verse in Judges 2.10, which we read in our reading a moment ago. And all that generation were gathered to the fathers. They died. And there arose another generation after them, their kids, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. These people saw all this stuff and somehow their kids grew up and didn't know about it. They didn't know the Lord or the works he had done. So they did evil, served the Baals, abandoned the Lord, turned to the gods of the people around them, Judges 2, 11 and 12. What we see in Judges 2 is that this older generation, they did not obey the voice of the Lord, verse 2. And so the Lord didn't drive out the nations from the land. Remember we said that that promise was tied to their perseverance in the faith. They didn't. So God didn't drive them out. Instead, he allowed them to become thorns in their side and a snare to them. Judges 2 verse 3. Their parents failed to follow rule number one, point number one, to hide God's word in their heart so that they would follow the Lord and direct, that the word would direct their steps at all times. We have to diligently teach the next generation both by our words and by our example. Third, he says, they need to bring the truth into the public square. Verse 20, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. God's word is to govern our home. Write them on the doorposts of your house. It should also govern society on your gates. The gates were where public business, the courts, the markets were held. I want you to notice the progression from the individual to the family to the world. God's word was to guide not only the individual, verse 18, and the family, verse 19, but also society, verse 20. And it's all, it's on all of us to see that God's word influences public life, politics, the courts, the marketplace. Faith is never merely a private matter. It's meant to impact every sphere of life. This means that Christians should speak at school board meetings, and we should oppose drag queen story hour at public libraries, and we should... Stand against the child abuse that is cross-sex hormones and reassignment surgery. We should work to pass laws and make policy that's based on the principles of God's word. We should vote for candidates who most align with the truth of God's word. And some of us as Christians are going to be called to hold local, state, and federal office. And pastors should not shrink back from, from addressing every issue with the word of God They shouldn't shrink back from that because they're afraid that it's political. We need pastors who are going to apply God's word to every sphere of life. The point here is that 
we all have a role to play in this. We stand in this long line of faithful Christians through church history, beginning in the first century, going through the Reformation, down to today. We have been handed this torch. Let's not be the generation that fails to pass it on. Now's not the time to retreat into a a little holy bubble. It's time to be faithful and bold to take the truth of God's word out into the world. The blessings of the covenant are not to be taken for granted. They're not to be considered automatic. So love the Lord your God, walk in all his ways, hold fast to him, because the assurance of God's promises are tied to our perseverance in faith and faithfulness. All this means that we have a choice to make. And that's the final point. The final point is really Moses' conclusion. We see this in verses 26 to 32. Choose this day if you will love and serve the Lord. Look at verse 26. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commands of the Lord your God, which I command you today. And the curse if you do not obey the commands of the Lord your God. But turn aside from the way that I'm commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. There's just two ways. It's really not that complicated. The way of faith and obedience which leads to life and blessing, and the way of unbelief and disobedience, which will lead to death and cursing. Neutrality is not an option. The reality of it is, is that every one of you is going to give your allegiance to something. Choose. Choose. And there's a sense of urgency here. He says, today I set before you. Whereas Joshua will say, choose you this day. There's no room for apathy or fence sitting. Commit yourself to the Lord. And then Moses gives them this ceremony for when they enter the land. This ceremony is going to be a living picture of the choice that lies before them. And it's going to be another point of decision for them. Look at verse 29. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Are they not beyond the Jordan, west of the road, toward the setting of the sun, in the land of the Canaanites who live in the Arabah, opposite Gilgal, beside the oaks of Morah? Like, what is going on here? These two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, they're opposite each other. They stand right in the heart of the promised land. They're in the geographic center, both east to west and north to south. And right in the middle you see Shechem. This is where the oak or the oaks of Morah are. This is the very place that God appeared to Abraham and first promised, to your offspring, I will give this land. Genesis chapter 12, verses six and seven. This is where Abraham first built an altar to the Lord. This is the perfect place to renew the covenant and celebrate God's faithfulness in keeping his promise made 400 plus years earlier. Now, this ceremony is described in more detail in chapter 27, and I want to try to help us get a picture of what what this would have been like. So here's what I want to do. I want to split the room in half. Everybody stand up. Stand up. You people on the side of the room, stay where you're at, but you, you folks in the middle about right here, I want you to split and just make a space in the middle And if you got to go into the aisle, that's fine. Go to the aisle 
but, I, but a nice space here. Okay, great. Now, half of the people, six tribes, were supposed to stand on, on Mount Gerizim, and they represented the blessing. The other half were supposed to stand on Mount Ebal, and they represented the curse. So maybe the, the, the half on the right, you're Mount Gerizim, the half on the left, you're Mount Ebal. Then they were supposed to set up large stones that they were supposed to cover with plaster, this whitewash, and write the words of the Lord on them. That was supposed to go on the top of Mount Ebal. Then they were supposed to make an altar and on that offer burnt offerings and peace offerings. And there all the people were going to eat and rejoice and celebrate together before the Lord. That's exactly what they did. Joshua did this after they defeated Jericho and Ai. They went to the spot, this spot, and they did everything that Moses commanded, Joshua 8, 31. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. Now, it's interesting. In Deuteronomy, it says stand on. The preposition can mean in front of, and that's what it says in Joshua, right? So they're standing in front of these mountains, these two mountains, and they're not far from each other, okay? Now, when we split apart like this, <laughs> you you start to get a sense of the powerful visual that this would have been for them, of this choice that is before them. Look around. Which side are you on? And which side should you be on? Are you, the, are you on the side of blessing or are you on the side of curse? Like Where are you at in this, in this living illustration? I think that this makes us want to pick, doesn't it? And if you're on the side of the cursing, you're itching to get to the other side. Like, I want to be on the blessing side. And if you're on the blessing side, you're saying, I'm not moving. I'm staying right here. This is the blessing side. Doing this invites this question, where do I stand? Not where do my parents stand? Not where do they stand? Where does somebody else stand? Where do I stand? Am I standing with the Lord? So either you need to move or you need to resolve to stay faithful. But choose today blessing or curse. Choose to love and serve the Lord or something else. But there's no middle ground. You're all in or you're not in. You guys can have a seat. I wonder... If any families got split over this, and this is not just a one-time decision, it's a daily choice, the daily choice of who we are to serve. And our covenant commitment should be renewed at significant junctures in our lives. Think about this. The, first, the covenant was first made with them at Sinai. Then it was renewed 40 years later in the plains of Moab. Then it was renewed again at the Oaks of Morah in Joshua 8. And Joshua's going to call them to this choice again at the end of his life. In that familiar passage where he says, Choose you this day who you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So it's right for us at periodic junctures in our lives to, to make this covenant renewal, this commitment to the Lord once again. But it's not just that. It's a daily decision, isn't it? Don't we, aren't we faced with this choice every single day? Am I going to serve the Lord today or not? So choose who you will 
serve. We have the same choice before us. And every individual must claim the promises of God by faith and show their allegiance to Christ their King by persevering in faithfulness. Now, of course, we know the Israelites failed miserably. (laughs) They continually rebelled and sinned against the Lord. In fact, the very people that Moses is talking to right here, they failed. And, And their children failed. And in the Old Testament, we see the repeated failures of Israel to keep God's commands. It's just painful. But it did become obvious then that we couldn't do it. That there is a need for a savior. A need for Jesus. Our own sinfulness and repeated sinful rebellion shows our need for the savior, Jesus Christ. It reminds us again of the third use of the law. The first use of the law is to show people who are already saved, to show the redeemed how they can live in a way that pleases God. That's number one. Second, the, the second use of the law is to restrain sin in society. But the third use is to show sinners our need of a savior. We see the righteousness that God requires in the law, but we can't keep it. However, Jesus kept it perfectly on our behalf so that by faith we stand in his righteousness alone. The law exposes our sin and it drives us to Christ so that we might be forgiven and justified by faith in him. That's the core doctrine of the Reformation. That's the gospel. Christ obeyed and suffered so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, Romans 8, 4. Then, once we are his, once we're Christians, once we belong to him, the law shows us how to live in a way that pleases God. And God enables us by the Holy Spirit to love and serve and obey him. It's God. God is the one who enables you, brothers and sisters, to persevere in faith and faithfulness to the end. Not perfectly, but growing and continuing in the faith by God's power until the end of our lives. So that we're able to choose this day and every day to love and serve and obey the Lord. And let's let the Reformation continue in us, in our family, and in society. Amen? Let's pray. We thank you and praise you, God, for all that you have done for us, and most especially all that you have done for us in Jesus Christ. God, I just ask and pray very simply that today at this another moment of decision before each one of us, God, that you would move in our hearts to choose to love and serve and obey Christ always, wholly, carefully with everything that we are. God, we ask and pray that you would enable us to do so by the power of your Holy Spirit and that it would all bring glory to you. God, would you enable us to be bold and faithful in taking your gospel to the world. God, we want to see it bring change as your rule as king spreads. Do that work in us and through us. We ask it and we pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen.